Hey friends, this is Holly Bame Lytle, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism in the Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's panel of exceptional autism parents. All right, welcome to our next episode of Isaac's Autism in the Wild. I feel very lucky today because I have Dr. Swineford. Um, She is a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at Washington State University joining me today. She has earned her PhD at Florida State University, which I love, and completed her postdoctoral training in the pediatric and developmental neuroscience branch at the National Institute of Health. She's conducted extensive, extensive studies with children over time on the, with autism, and her clinical and research interests involve pre-linguistic and language development for individuals with ASD. How'd I do? That was lovely. Pretty good. I mean, Thank I stumbled so a little bit. Yes, I'm actually really excited about this because we're in Spokane, Washington. Some of you may not be here local, but you are a real asset to our community to have you at WSU. Thank you. Well, um... I'm excited to be here. You know, when I was leaving my postdoc and trying to figure out where my next stop was for my career, I interviewed all over the country. And one of the things that um, made Washington State an easy decision for me is that at my interview, they actually included community partners um, who were doing work with families with autism, which helped me really understand that we could do research at the university that would impact hopefully local families and work with community partners to um, do real world research. Yes, and that's exactly what you're doing. It's exciting. Yes. Well, the reason why I begged you to come and do a podcast is because communication is such a primary concern when you're talking about autism spectrum disorders. So, um, you know, even with my son, Caleb, you know, he's very verbal and he has a lot of language, but even then there's like nuances and, you know, um, there's nuances of language that he is still at age 11. Like he's still in speech therapy because we're trained to get, so there's so much to language, but even on the other end of it, when you don't have the functional language, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of technology out there. And the question is, um, what do families do? What do we look at? Um, and so AAC is um, is an option, yeah. but it's confusing. So I asked you to come so that we could kind of like start dialing in on what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more about language and communication just being such an important part of um, development, not only for children with autism, but for kids with all sorts of communication disorders and kind of the impact that it has not only on them, but but their families as as well. Um, And AAC, like you said, is a hot topic. It's... um, can be an option for some families, but there is a lot of um, misinformation out there as there is with many other things. Yes. Um, Yes. I'm raising my hands. Yes. Yes. Like so much. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, generally speaking, AAC stands for augmentative and alternative communication. And this is anything that we do to communicate that doesn't involve verbal speech. Okay. Um, so all of us use AAC on a daily basis. This is anything like how you're nodding your head. I'm nodding my head. Yes, that's exactly like what I'm thinking. waving your hand goodbye. Um, or waving other 
fingers goodbye. Right? Or waving <laughs> other fingers goodbye. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, we've all been there. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we all use it every day, but for individuals with communication disorders, some have to rely on it more to either supplement spoken language or for some it actually replaces and becomes their primary communication system. Yes, and can I tell you a quick side story here? Please. When you're talking about that, you know, even though Caleb is, you know, he's ASD level one, he's, you know, completely conversational, I use some of his text messages to me in some of my trainings when I'm working with first responders because while be it he's conversational, um, when he gets upset, you know, like you'll see these beautiful, you know, sentences, mom, can I have this? And I'm like, no, not now I'm busy. Yep. I'll, you know, connect with you later. And then it's like, mom, mom, mom. And then it starts in on the emojis. Yeah. He starts sending me the emojis and it's all of the, you know, like the sad emojis, now the crying emojis. Now it's the mad emoji. And then he starts sending me poop emojis. Yeah. It's a real deal. I'm not even kidding. I have it. I, I screenshotted it and I use it in some of my, but it's an example of, for him, his language, you know, starts to fall off when he gets upset and then again he starts using his AAC yes. skills using emojis yeah. you know and it's actually quite effective it's it quite is. effective and I think that's so important because I think both families and and a lot of speech pathologists I know kind of the early emphasis is always on like will my child talk or how do I get um, as from the clinician point of view like what's the best way for this individual to acquire language but once we reach that milestone, there are so many other aspects of language development that we need to consider through school age, adolescence, um, both in terms of spoken language and, like you said, um, AAC as, as well. Yes. So, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so that answers the AAC. What is it? So the next thing we were talking about is what are the different types? You were just talking about it's as simple as me nodding my head and, you know, giving people the one finger goodbye, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... It can get really complicated to think about the types of AAC, but broadly you can bin it into either unaided systems, which basically means that we're just relying on our bodies in some way. This could be our body language, our facial expressions, gestures that we use, um, manual sign. Um, so really no external support or external device needed. Okay. Then there are aided devices, and this basically means that there is some type of external support or device that's used. And Within this category, there's a huge range from um, very low-tech to no-tech options, which okay. would be like a picture communication board that people use. Okay, and that, um, back in my Isaac years, those were what we had. Yeah. I had the laminated PECs, PECs yeah. um, the uh, pictures, and they weren't even, well, I did get a little bit more sophisticated at the end, and I went around and I did photograph things and then like sh tried to shrink them down and copied them and laminated them. But it really was just like laminated pictures that mm -hmm. I just kept in my purse and I would pull it out and they were Velcroed and that was what we rocked. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's a very common one with pets in terms of low tech. Um, and then there is a ton of technology. Available. I can't even keep up with it anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, me either. It oh, is just okay. ever changing and, and that makes me feel better actually. Yeah. So. yeah. Okay. So you definitely have to have to keep up with it. Okay. So what is the current state of evidence when we're talking about AAC? Because I know that specifically with autism, because, you know, we were all as as an autism community, we were super jazzed yeah. when the iPad and the Provo quote to go. Um, there's been obviously, without a doubt, some really amazing, spectacular stories that you can Google online yeah. in terms of it just completely unlocking um, communication for some individuals. And then... You know, so a lot of families invested the money. And um, so what is the evidence telling us when it comes to, um, you know, which ones have the best 
results. Yeah. Is there anything you can tell me? Yeah, I mean, the, the research is messy. And part of that is because individuals with autism are also different oh, from so each much. other, right? Yes. So there's so much variability even within the spectrum. And then because of all of the different options for AAC, um, that also adds to kind of the messiness of the research. I think big picture evidence has consistently shown that the earlier the intervention for individuals with autism, the better, and there should be an emphasis on developing functional use of spontaneous communication, whether that's through verbal language or using AAC. Okay. In terms of AAC specifically, um, in 2015, the National Autism Center basically put out a report that evaluated the state of treatment research for individuals with autism, and one piece of that was on AAC. Okay. And they evaluated over 400 studies and basically came to the conclusion that, or, or the way that they categorized AAC research is that it's emerging. And what they mean by that is there's at least one, that's it, at least one um, study that has documented positive outcomes for individuals with ASD using AAC, but that we need a lot more high quality research before we can make kind of generalized statements around what types of AAC work best for which individuals. Okay. Well, that actually, I mean, it's a little, well, it's disappointing to hear that we don't have better information, but actually shows that more focus is going to be put on assessing yeah. how how they are performing that. Yeah. So that's good. It is good. And I think one thing I would encourage families to do is when they're thinking about AAC and getting an assessment, you want to make sure it's with someone who both knows a lot about AAC, but also understands individuals with autism. Um, those two pieces together will yield kind of your best or most thorough assessment that can kind of predict which assessments um, or which uh apps and devices and configurations are a good place to start for that individual. We are definitely not in a place that it's, if you have autism and you're going to use AAC, like this would work. Like here's a step up packet. Step yeah. Two, yeah. There's I mean, no rhyme or reason. Like everything it. else. Yeah. I mean, we just don't have that clear of a past. You just really need someone with the expertise with both of those things. Okay. Well, that actually is really helpful because, you know, at the Isaac Foundation, we have tons of families asking us for, to purchase a lot of this different equipment and which one do we need and what apps should we have? And it's like, oh man, like I wouldn't even know where to even start. And Exactly what you're saying. Every provider kind of has a different, you know, go-to, but you're, what you're saying makes way more sense. It's really not just your standard, oh, these are my, this is my go-to. It's really, you have to do a full assessment of the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there, there are a lot of myths out there about who could benefit from AAC and their longstanding, um, which again, makes it complicated for families that are looking for this information online. And even clinicians that I interact with that um, maybe can't keep up with the research as much of those of us that are doing this, you know, specifically on a day to day basis. Um, you know, in the past, we used to think, well, if, if an individual doesn't quite understand cause and effect, that that would not be a good candidate for AAC or um, someone who doesn't have certain pre-linguistic or, or kind of the foundations of language development that we see in typically developing children that, well, they wouldn't be ready for AAC, but we know better now. And that's why 
you know, having an assessment by someone who both understands the differences in those behaviors and how children with autism learn, as well as kind of um, dispelling some of those myths around AAC can do the right kind of assessment to really figure out, is this a good match? What type um, of device would be the most appropriate? And then being able to edit that plan over time as the individual develops. And I think that's key is, is that it's a moving plan. Yeah. It's not just, okay, here's, you know, what we're going to do. And this is going to be the end all be all is yeah. that it has to develop with the child. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, one of the takeaways that I hope people um, can get from this podcast is that people talk about AAC as an actual intervention. Yes. And as a speech pathologist um, who works with individuals with autism, I would actually encourage people to view AAC not necessarily as the intervention itself, but as a tool that we can use with evidence-based strategies and with evidence-based treatment to facilitate communication. AAC by itself um, is not, as we just talked about earlier, you know, evidence-based treatment. But we have a lot of evidence to support how we can help individuals with autism learn, what type of intensity of treatment, what types of strategies, and pairing those with the right type of AAC system is likely going to yield the best outcomes. That is actually really good. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic feedback. That's Mm -hmm. so true. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap up this today's podcast, but I'm going to backtrack here. Yeah, where This is where we can add it. Okay. So here's the thing. You were doing a current research project at WSU. I want to talk about this a little bit. We can put this in a little side note. Okay, so I'm excited about this program because tell us a little bit about your research project that you have currently going at WSU. Yeah, so we currently have um, two active protocols. One is um, following very young children um, over time. Um, And we do uh, intensive or uh, comprehensive, I should say, um, behavioral assessments. So we start seeing kids as early as as nine months of age, um, and we see children that parents have concerns about their child's development, um, whether it's just language development, motor development, or sometimes specific concerns um, for autism spectrum disorder. And then we also see families that don't have concerns about their children's development to kind of watch the different um, changes over time. Um, So we see kids at 9, 12, 15, 18, 24, and 36 months of age Um, All of the assessments are free in the lab, and we don't have um, much of a wait list. And then we provide families with comprehensive reports um, and intervention recommendations that they can bring to community partners and and hopefully kind of give them the best um, bang for the buck for coming into the project. So so that one is focused more on kind of how does speech and language develop in, in our young kids. The other protocol that we have is about how do we assess language once it's present. Um, As a speech pathologist, I can tell you there's a real hole in the field um, for clinicians about um, trying to test language in kids with autism and get an accurate picture. I actually am thinking of Caleb right now and how I could likely give him a standardized test and things would look really good, but then when we try and use language in other contexts, he may have more difficulty or there may be things that... um, we want to actually support him more with. Um, so there is a new assessment called the OSOL, which is the Observation of Spontaneous Expressive Language that has basically been designed to fill that gap. And we're helping collect the norming data for that. Um, so this is kids from two to age 12. Um, so a wider age range and, and kind of crossing into school age and early adolescence. 
Um, and again, children would receive uh, language assessment, autism-specific testing, um, cognitive testing to kind of help us understand how well the test works, but also then provide families with information about their current um, language development and kind of recommendations for moving forward. Oh my gosh, that sounds heaven. Because I'm going to tell you, so here's a little like side story, but, and I think you probably, I probably shared this with you. When Caleb was first born, you know, having you know, been the mom of Isaac and had that wonderful experience, I obviously was really heightenedly aware of the fact that we had risk factors when it came to Caleb. And um, I'm telling you what, like I was watching him like a hawk, you know, like just even how he was like looking at me and gaze shifting and just like his facial affect. And at three months, like there was enough there that was, you know, again, not my first rodeo because I had Tyler too. I, there was just some things that, you know, had me concerned and I, I recorded them and I would take Caleb with me to the doctor and I would say, you know, like, okay, so yes, I have a healthy baby and I'm probably just concerned, but like, watch this video. Cause like, do you think that this looks peculiar? And it progressed, progressed, progressed. And everybody poo-pooed me and thought I was crazy. And then when his communication came online, it was like, nope, see, he's talking. You know, he's, you know, very verbal. He's very this. He's conversational. Like, you're just, you know, you're not, uh, I'm, you know, probably over-exaggerating maybe their exact words, but it was similar, yeah. similar in context. But the point was, is that, you know, like, again, you know, it's like his, you know, his use of language and how um, it's you know, it's, it's quirky, you know what I mean? He has holes and how he applies it, um, you know, in real world environment, it's not, it's not normal developing. And that's where Caleb, you know, we always treated Caleb as though it was an autism spectrum disorder and he's been in early services and he qualified because of some, you know, for occupational therapy reasons, but it was never because of language until he got to be like nine or 10. You know what I'm saying? Nine or 10. And, um, it's, be, you, know, you know what I mean? Which is, it, and that's where I think too, it, I'm not the only one where, you know, I'm, you know, this is my field. So obviously, you know, we put him in early intervention, but there's a lot of families out there that, you know, see providers or they're in school and it's like, well, no, you know, because autism so often is thought of as, you know, like major communication deficit, yeah as opposed to appropriate language, you know what I mean? And I think that's where I love this concept of what you're talking about. Um, And I I hope that that, you know, that we're starting to address some of those issues around language and autism. And and some of that's reflected in the newest um, DSM criteria for autism in, in kind of two different ways. So you know, the previous version of DSM had three different categories and communication was its own separate category. What happened in the newest edition is we actually combined that with the social concern. So it's that you have to have impairments in social communication and interaction, because to your point about Caleb, it's not just the presence of language, but it's how we use it, right? Communication is a signal to someone else. It's something we do socially. Um, So we try to reflect that just in the overall categories that that part of communication is how how we use it to interact. Um, The second thing, which I think a lot of speech pathologists had, had at first like a little bit of an adverse reaction to, one of the criteria in the past versions of the DSM was that there was a delay in spoken language without compensating, you know, with gestures and, and facial expressions, things like that. Um, and that actually was removed. And I think, again, Caleb's a perfect example of like, 
you wouldn't have checked that box for him as a young child because he met those concrete language milestones in terms of like, is he using language? When did he use language? How many words does he have? Um, so at first people were kind of like, whoa, 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 language is so important. How would you remove this from the criteria? But what they've done is actually made it what's called a specifier. So if an individual receives a diagnosis of autism, then you need to specify and describe what is their language like. So it's not just yes or no. Yes, because it it's not yes present or no. Absent, right? It's so variable that we're asking people to do a better job of actually describing the functioning level, the language level, the cognitive level, all of these things that we know actually are the day-to-day things yes. that, that help us, um, you know, predict success. Correct. Um, so hopefully we're shifting in that, that direction, but, um, always room to grow. Absolutely. So quick question. So yeah. if you are in the region, is it, are you still able to participate in any of these projects that you have going? Yeah. Yeah. They are both still, um, actively recruiting kids and, um, and I have had several families that have been part of your research and they have just absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, and well, so, so nice to hear. Oh yes. Like it's really, you know, they couldn't be happier with just, um, you know, being part of it and just the services that they get and working with you. So it's been fantastic. So what we will do is provide some information with this podcast in terms of how they can get connected with you if they're interested. And again, really important to emphasize it's um, children starting at nine months and it's with or without concern. So um, yeah, it's basically any you're between nine and 36 months of age, you are eligible. 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 There's a a few uh, nuances to that, but as a whole, um, this is not a study specific um, for children with autism, but likely to help inform what we know about autism by studying a wider range of children. Which is such a great opportunity. So yeah. anyway, I had to make a side plug for that because I no, really am, as a parent, and of course, as a parent who has a second child with autism, um, again, you know, on a personal note, just knowing and feeling in my gut that there were little things that were different and I couldn't get anybody to listen to me. I just, I personally think that, um, I'm really excited about your project and I want to make sure we get as many interested families and qualifying families to participate because I think you're doing good work over there. So I can't think of anything else. I do thank you. I'm sure we're going to have Lori back on some other future podcasts because she has a wealth of knowledge about a variety of different things. One of the things that I know um, people we talk about a lot is the DSM and you talked about it. So I'm going to just kind of put a plug on that. We want to do another podcast talking about the DSM and some of the nuances about you were just speaking of just yeah well I'd be happy to so I was a part of the um, neurodevelopmental work group for the DSM um so kind of have some of the background knowledge on how decisions were made um and kind of the combination of science and politics yes. into some of those decisions um and I know I was here one day um with a group of parents where we kind of like I said we were the talk was actually about something else about language but it went in the direction of DSM and there were so many great questions. So I would be happy to ask. Well, it's confusing. And again, also too, not every provider that diagnoses autism is probably as educated as they, they maybe could or should be. And so there's a lot of, again, misconceptions and misunderstandings and, and so we would love to actually um, dive into that more. So yeah. we'll have you back when it, when we're doing that one, because I think it's definitely yeah. a topic that many parents want to hear more about. So yeah. we're going to wrap this one up. So thanks for listening to this episode of Isaac's Autism in the Wild. 
And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.